Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. And I'm particularly delighted. It's always, it's more than delighted. It's over the moon to say that we are joined by Jason Isaacs. Jason, where the hell are you? I am in a particularly uh, unwelcoming Toronto. It was waist or chest deep in snow yesterday, <laughs> and we had a snow day at school. Uh, I got to work, and half the crew and cast had not made it. They'd, they'd shut the streets down, so we've shot what we could with the people who were available. And what uh, are you shooting? Can you tell us? I can. I'm never in anything secret, and I always... I no, I know, I mean, NDAs you're a total anyway. blabbermouth, but, but just, you know... I just yeah, because they, they never fire you. You sign those NDAs, and what are they going to do, sue you? You're in the have thing. You, okay, yeah. have, you, have you ever been actually reprimanded for telling, somebody, for telling a journalist something that you shouldn't have told them? Yes, and for posting things as well. I don't know. Okay. It's fine. Was that on Star um, Trek? Yes. Of course it was <laughs> because on Star I learned Trek. On Harry Potter, when they had don't take <laughs> photographs, I didn't take photographs and I regret it enormously. And so on Star Trek, there were huge posters going, do not take photographs of film. I just filmed from the second I got there to when I left. I have a, I have a million pictures. Um, but no, so I'm filming a television series, which is already on television in uh, America and Canada and places called Good Sam. It's a medical drama and I find myself elbow deep in blood most of the time and other people's organs. Uh, and I'm doing my very best Holby City impression. And how are you doing with that? Because I have a whole thing. I'm terrified of, I mean, I can watch dramas and horror films and the rest of it, but I'm actually really scared of actual blood. My whole family was medical. So I'm terrified right, right. of hospitals. I'm terrified of doctors. I'm terrified of actual things. Are you, no, no, I'm rubbish. In real life, I'm absolutely rubbish. People could just describe to me something that's happened to them. Obviously, if it's in the downstairs department, I'm wincing already, but even wherever it is, anyway, I, I find it stomach-churning. But when it's prosthetics, uh, I'm remarkably brave and heroic. Uh, yesterday, I had my hands around a heart. I was uh, bypassing and, and when, okay, but when, when you When you have your hands around a heart in a drama, we will get to the meat of this later on, but when you have right. your hands around a heart, do they use, like, animal hearts or is it prosthetic heart? How does it work? I mean, so many times you see, it's, like, no, open a, up... We, well, we're shooting right next to a funeral director. So they're, they're freshly deceased people uh, who've given their organs to art and uh, they're cadavers. Oh, it's rubber, for yes, God's sake. Thank it's all rubber. Thank you. you think? I mean, by the way, they're extraordinary. They pump and the blood works and the veins snap off and it looks uh, all, it all looks magnificent. But, uh, but the blood tastes of maple syrup. It what's, the, Canada. What's, the worst, what's the worst injury or medical moment you have ever had? In my real life, or on in your screen. real life, and I'll tell you mine. But you can you go first, and I'll tell you mine. Oh, I, I, oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking about the first time I remember hurting myself at all uh, was when my best friend Katie gave me some Vicks vapor rub when I had a, a bad chest when when you and I were at school together when I was twelve, yeah. and uh, and I rubbed it on my chest uh, lying in my bed at night where I sleep naked, and then I stroked myself the way one does gently for <laughs> comfort and the testicles. <laughs> And I leapt out of bed, screamed, probably for my mother. I hope not in retrospect that I didn't and needed to wash uh, the nether regions for quite a while before the stinging went away. That's the first pain I remember. There'd been many things since then, but that stays with me. Well, what have you got for me? Well, that massively trumps mine. Um, but no, so, so mine is one of the I'm reasons. I'm eating, by the way. Are we broadcasting pictures because I'm eating? If, you, if, if, if it's a if it's a Patreon uh, a person, you know, on Patreon Good. we have the video. Enjoy so, everyone. What are you Excellent. eating there, Jason? Everyone enjoy. 
I'm eating. Uh, well, I couldn't get food delivered yesterday. And we worked like these 16 hour days, crazy days. But no one could deliver because no one could open their front door. So I made a stew of all the rotting vegetables at the bottom of my fridge Yum. and scraped the mold off. I thought if I boiled it hot enough, surely it kills every germ. And it's and, that. And how is it? Is it tasty? Hmm. Problem is, it looks horrid. Problem is, I've not used a microwave in this house before. I think, I think it's industrial. <laughs> and that's just melted a hole through my tongue. <laughs> but... Oh, it's, it's tasty if you like heat. While your Sorry, tongue, you were saying. Well, no, no, I was going to tell you, while your tongue recovers, I'll tell you my much less exciting thing. Before we were at school together, when I was at primary school, one of the reasons I, you know, when you, you do your roles, you grow beards and things and facial hair and all that. I can't. Half a beard, I, yeah. I can't grow a beard because I've got these, oh. all these bald patches. And the reason is that when I was a kid, we used to live in Brooklyn Rise in Hampstead. And my mum had a little Morris Minor. And we mm -hmm. were in the Morris Minor. She pulled out of the thing. And I was in the front seat. Back then, kids were in front seats and nobody thought yeah, it was yeah. a bad idea. With no seatbelt on. No seat, exactly. Yeah. You know, with holding glass. Smoking, probably. probably. Yeah. <laughs> And mum was drinking, obviously. And, uh, and mum said, is your door locked? And I said, yes. And to prove it, I leant on the door, which not only wasn't <laughs> locked, wasn't shut. And I went straight out of the car and face planted on the thing. And I've, so I've got all these scars on my... It's oh, like no, real scars. It. Yeah. So I can't, I can't oh, grow yeah. facial hair around those bits. So when I grow it, I grow it. It looks like that thing out of Team America World Police when he has the right, right, right. <laughs> facial hair grafted on. And well, it's a shame. Because I've seen your face close up many a time. Yeah, you uh, can't see it. I mean, they're just like, they're, they're white. Yeah. You know, you know how, you know how scars yeah, are. They're white. This is the bit that you can see. Because um, I, one of the things I did was I drove my, my tooth went through my tongue. I got, mm. And you probably can't see because wow. I've got the, got the fur, but I got a big lump on my tongue where my wow. bottom tooth came up through my, through the thing. That's uh, that reminds me of time I was living in Venice Beach making something. I was, I think it might be Armageddon time or something. And I used to go rollerblading down the front, that famous bit at the front, which is kind of a path of for bike riders and rollerbladers. Of course you uh, did. Of a morning. Uh, and I was rollerblading down there nice and early. Most things closed, no tourists around. There was a guy leaning in front of the tattoo shop. And from behind him were coming these absolute blood-curdling screams. Literally someone going, ah! <laughs> and I looked at him and very casually, I think he was smoking a joint. He nodded his head backwards and went, tongue. <laughs> That's all he said. Just that one word. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing to the tongue, but nothing good. You don't have any tattoos, do you? Oh, God, no. I can't decide what to order off a menu, let alone some pattern I want to live with the rest of my life. No, but I'll tell you what, where my life is. God, it's so nice to see you. I probably shouldn't record any of this. It's just old friends. But, but um, when I was going to lots of conventions before the pandemic came along, which I, I kind of rather love meeting people and talking about films and stuff and particularly seeing how much uh, Harry Potter meant to so many people. So yeah. people will come up and they really wanted to, you know, share what it had meant to them. Uh, and then every now and again, some lovely young person will ask me to sign their body to have it tattooed on there because they have <laughs> tattoo artists and conventions. And I beg them not to, I always beg, please don't. And they very often then open their shirt and show they've got the rest of the cast or <laughs> every Star Trek. Moment. And I just, it's so upsetting that someone will have just an idiot like me, you know, <laughs> scarred on the body forever. And I keep, I've been searching for ways to persuade people not to do it. And then the last time it happened, this young woman came up and she said, you sign my, will you sign my arm? And I said, oh, don't, don't do that. Look, you can have as many pictures as you like for free. And she went, I want your signature. And I said, what if I turn out to be a paedophile? <laughs> I don't know where it came from. And she went, what? <laughs> I said, what if it turns out I've got this sordid past and you've got my name wrong? And she went, well, are you? Where are you? And I go, I don't know. People blank things out. Maybe, maybe it will come to light under hypnosis. And she went, any pictures? And I went, as many as you like. <laughs> and so from then on, that was my tactic. People come up and I go, maybe I've got some really dark secrets in my past. And uh, know, that's it. But it's also, I mean, you and I went to school with somebody who um, who ended up being a kind of, uh, a, in a punk band that were quite big for a while. And they toured with, this Kevin, they toured with Adam oh, and I the see. Ants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's not about it. Um, they toured with Adam and the Ants. And if memory serves, he had an Adam and the Ants tattoo at the point when Adam and the Ants were really sort of like a rocking, you know, wow. punk band. Five years later, they're opening the Royal Variety performance, you know, and bowing <laughs> in front of the Queen. And it's always yeah. the thing about never have any pop star tattooed on your body. You have no idea where their career is. Never have is anybody's name. Go. 
That's Never. right. Uh, this, thing, this is a story that uh, he tells, so I'm not telling it uh, in discreet, uh, indiscretion or else. Uh, I would never do it. But Alan Cumming is uh, an old friend of mine. And at one point he came to London and saw his old friends and had dinner and stood up uh, with his new boyfriend. He said, let's show them now, shall we? Uh, and everybody, and they opened their pants. They dropped their pants because they had their undies on. And he said, this is my new boyfriend, Raven. And, uh, and Raven and I have had tattoos on uh, of each other's names and they'd had each other's names tattooed across their groin. And we all slack-jawed, <laughs> just stared in silence, <laughs> thinking, you've been going out for five months. What are you doing? <laughs> and sure enough, years later, it's part of Alan's one-man show. He tells the story about how many years and how much pain it's been to have that removed. He's very happily married to a wonderful man. But um, yeah. I can't decide on it. I, I, I would have a tattoo if I knew there was some pattern I'd like to see the rest of my life. But yeah. uh, I, I no, don't I had, want to see myself. I, I, had, I had a tattoo when I was young and then I had it, had it taken off because it was like, it was a stupid... I mean, of course, obviously when they take tattoos, you still have a scar. So it's like yeah, rather than having the tattoo, you've got a scar in the shape of the tattoo, which you wish you which hadn't is, done. Oh, which is? What, is your, what was your tattoo? You see if you can tell oh, from the shape of the scar. Hang on. Great radio. I will describe for you, ladies and gentlemen. I can see barely you a, can see it there. a patch it, of hang on, arm. Hang on, I'll shine a I'll shine a torchlight on. It looks ruddy. Yeah, hold on. Oh, you can't you can't Ooh, see. Hold, hold on, hold on, no, hold on. Is it possible to see? You can't see. Well there. Yeah, it's, but no, it's, it was a it was a bird. It was a it was a bird. A bird. Yeah, that's not offensive. No, it's not was offensive. It, it was just, a I just phoenix. Didn't, didn't like it. That's right. Yes. No, it was just like one of those things that I did when I was really I was young and stupid, and then I grew up and thought, oh, for heaven's sake! And it wasn't very just good. Just to pass either. the time in Boston, presumably. That's right, exactly. That was the other thing. Is it wasn't yeah. very good. I think if it had been good, I got it done. I got it done in the Arndale Centre in Manchester, and I have to I say, it was, well. it was it was a lunchtime. I was you know it was right. a lunchtime. Oh, I've got half an hour free. I think I'll get my body permanently. Scarred. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a terrific idea when you were drunk in the Navy. No, I, I would, by the way, I, I do love uh, a, a great tattoo. And, and I also I'm, admire and I'm slightly in awe of people's certainty that it's something that they want to look at for the rest of their life. But I, I, uh, I like living, I'm living in a rented house. I'm talking to you from Toronto, a rented house. I quite like being in rented accommodation. I'm away working because I don't have to look around and go, I chose that table. I'm not sure about that yeah. art, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't, because it's not mine. None of it's mine. And I don't yeah. have to judge myself by it. It's the reason yeah. I wear the same t-shirt and jeans every day. I go, it's not, they're not me. They're just the things I put on. <laughs> so on the subject of Meanwhile, back on, at the farm. Yeah. So Jason, I have been going on about mass. Well, it must be a year now because I think I, I yeah. first saw it a year ago when it, cause it played at Sundance. Mm -hmm. And and I said it then, and I'll say it again now. I think it's absolutely astonishing. I think it's not just the best work that you've ever done, but I think it's like a really important film um, for people who don't know about it, because it's now it's opening now in the in the UK, so it's going to be in some cinemas and it's going to be on Sky Cinema. Just tell us what Mass is about, and then we'll discuss the kind of intricacies of it. Sure. But I want to, I would just want to restate that I, I think it is a really brilliant piece of work and really powerful. And I've seen it a couple of times now. And you know that I've been going on about this. like ever No, since you've been a fantastic advocate for it. And, and I'm, I find it slightly embarrassing that I am too, because I'm in it. Um, so it's, you know, uh, and obviously you and I have spoken professionally over the years and I'm publicizing other things. And some of them are good, very good, you know, and some of them aren't. And, and every now and again, something comes along, which is so much bigger or more important. These are words that make something sound worthy. It's incredibly watchable um, than, than any, than the ego of any of the participants. You know, this is a, uh, you know, on the, the baseline, it does that thing that film should do. It, like you, you want to watch it. You want to find out what's going to happen next. It's got a intrigue. It's got a story Four people walk into a room. What's going to happen? Um, and, uh, but it also, uh, and it does that other thing, sorry, that film should do, which is it finishes, you think, oh, God, I'd like to watch another film soon. Films are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it takes you, takes the audience, I've now seen it with lots of audiences, on a huge emotional journey uh, through all kinds of experiences and leaves you, I think, without too much of a spoiler, spiritually uh, uplifted. I mean, believing in possibility, believing in hope, believing maybe in the power, the essential almost divine nature of forgiveness. I mean, it's yeah. a, for, for everyone who is used to, as we all are, watching films going, well, that was well done. Well, that was interesting. That was kind of intriguing for a while. And uh, should we have Chinese or should we have a curry or, you know, <laughs> you want a pizza? Like, 
this is a big experience. It grips you. It grips you with its specifics, but it also has something incredibly resonant and universal uh, to impart. Not because it's a message film, because nothing clear comes out of it. There aren't any answers or anything. But in the end, it's a to my mind, and I'm so wary and aware. You know, I'm glad we'll go into detail. This sounds so incredibly pretentious, but it's a it's a plea for human contact. It's a, it's a plea for connection and for us in these increasingly divided times. So where I mean, it was divided times before the pandemic. Now we're divided and isolated, and we're in times when. Those divisions have been weaponized by people like Trump and, and other people that, you know, we're, we're turned against each other by social media and by the echo chambers we live in. It's a plea for engaging with each other as human beings and, and to see each other and to hear each other and ultimately to free ourselves from resentment and blame and all those toxic forces that actually can ruin our lives without changing anything outside ourselves. So anyway, that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think I, I agree with you. I think it's a really, really special and piece of work and a huge experience and a great movie, which is ironic for a film, which is mostly about four people sitting in a room. Yeah. Uh, and we can talk about what the plot is, but the plot, you know, it's really not about a shock. Like it, this is really not about the incident that set these four people up that they examine because they're looking for answers, but it's as much about marriage, about denial, about... Hope. It, it was inspired. Um, the writer director Fran Krantz, who is more articulate, obviously, than I am about it, but it was inspired enormously by the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission amnesty yeah. hearings and by Desmond Tutu's book. You know, that if those people, the people who went through that, can find it in their heart to forgive for themselves as much as for the other people. And if the characters in this film who are, have experienced something so extreme, I hope to God that nobody ever listening has to go through, if they can find it in their heart and, and recognize the necessity of forgiveness, then any of us can. And, uh, uh, and so that's what the film's about. It's a very long answer, but I do think it's about all those things. When you talk about blame on your part, I want to know what you're referring to. There is nothing that wasn't covered in the depositions. But I want to hear it now. We never filed against you. We never took part in any of that. Maybe a better way than interrogating is to, to learn Fine. what we remember. Fine. So, tell me what you remember. Tell me about your son. What would you like to know? Everything. I want to know everything. Why? Why do I want to know about your son? Because he killed mine. But it's interesting. You say, um, you know, it's not about the four people in the room. What's going to happen? The, I mean, the question also is what has happened. And one of the things about the film is two couples, four people, they meet in a room in a church. So the name mass obviously alludes to this, you know, to something larger than just spiritual, simply. if not religious. Certainly. Exactly. Yeah. But crucially, they're in a room that is off from the church. So they're not in the church. They're in a church room, which I think is a really, it's a brilliantly liminal space. It's mm -hmm. somewhere between the two worlds. And what they are there to do is to attempt to discuss a trauma that they all share from different sides. And they all come to it with a certain degree of, you know, baggage and PTSD and a whole bunch of other things. Sure. And then what happens over the course of the drama is that we slowly start to figure out what the thing is that's happened. Although it's not a great, re you know, you kind of... You no, it's sort not a great revelation. You yeah. sort of I mean, actually, I think the mystery as much, sorry to interrupt you, Conjure, no, is that it, they don't come to discuss it. There's a very specific mandate. The whole film, I mean, apart from the setup, starts where we, I pull over to the side of the road and my wife goes, I don't think I can do it. Yeah, yeah. She's got a mandate. She has come there to do something. Yeah. You know, the thing that we've been told that will help. We've come there because our life is ruined, not because our life is ruined six years ago by the school shooting. It's because our lives are unbearable at the moment. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the, the incident that lives with us. It's our daily lives, our daily compromises, our, our inability to see, talk to each other, to be parents, to be in the world. Uh, and we just need to, Break, something needs to break this paralysis. And, and so it's not, they don't come together to discuss it, to relive it. They've come because we've asked, myself, my wife, have asked them to turn up so that we can do this particular thing. 
And in some ways, that's the mystery. What is the particular thing they've come to do? And yeah. will it work? You know, and um, that and that sense of the particular thing that they are trying to do is, you, you know, you re relate this back to the to the idea of forgiveness. What they are trying to do is to move on by somehow making peace with this thing and yeah. the, and and that's the central it's like uh, is everybody just going to hit a brick wall or are they actually going to be able to make so are they actually going to be able to connect with each other and understand each other's point of view and during the course of the drama which kind of ebbs and flows i said i mean I, the, here's the weirdest thing and this is a, this is a pain in the ass as a film critic if you try <laughs> and describe mass you do what you just did you say it's four people in a room talking which literally sounds like the cinematic kiss of death you know what what I mean? worse I what people say is it's four people who meet to relive a trauma it's a harrowing account and they go who wants to see that? Even at the best of times, the happiest of times. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. isn't. It's an uplifting, to me, it, it doesn't mean to uplift it while you're watching it. It's uplifting like when you go on a roller coaster. You know, it's terrifying to go down the hill. And it's, it's very emotional. But And you don't want to spoil it because our plot is what the characters feel and mm -hmm. say and what happens to them. So if you give away that, you're giving away, we don't have Jeff Goldblum uploading a code to the aliens. Like we, <laughs> we've just got what they do and what they feel. Um but without spoiling it too much, it will take you to a place, hopefully, of it's almost religious, and I'm not religious at all, a, a, a place of, of belief and hope in, in the capacity of humankind to overcome. Tell me about working with those other three key cast members. I mean, were you all, did you all, I mean, I know this is the, you know, the, the cast really bonded during the making of a film, which is the kind mm. of the standard cliche. It's the thing, you know, oh, yeah. what was it like working with Bruce? Well, he was It's great, very hard really to avoid the cliches. Uh, which have been so denuded by being used in other contexts because they really work in this one, you know. Uh, I didn't know them. In fact, let me rewind slightly earlier. When I was offered the job, I asked to get involved. I remember reading it. I remember reading it and, you know, you and I are both quite lacrimose, but, you know, this one just got me. I was sitting in Starbucks, just sobbing, and at the end, feeling like I wanted to run and kiss everyone and phone everyone I love <laughs> and uh, snot pouring down me, waiting for them to have called the, you know, the funny farm. Just waiting for the, that's just you on a Friday, a, isn't it? That's, that's usual. Yeah. <laughs> They've given me a very wide berth. Um, <laughs> and then I went to meet this young, this young actor who'd written it, uh, thinking, uh, you know, I, is he going to make this? Is it ever going to happen? And if he did, is there any chance that any actors on the planet could convey what just happened to me when I read it? Sometimes things read well and they're just unactable. And then I thought, as it was clear, he was going to try and make it as a film. He didn't have the money, you know, even though it wasn't going to be much money, it was some money. Um, and I thought, I don't think I'm up to it. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, this requires something of the actors that you don't see normally, a kind of rawness and honesty and authenticity to, to leave any of the tricks at the door and just be open to whatever comes and feels. You can't plan it. Um, am I good enough? And then last of all, is anybody going to watch this? Like, even if we had all that stuff, would it be one of those times when actors really said, oh my God, we would climbed an emotional Everest. And then you watch it and you go, Ugh, a bunch of people shouting at each other in a room, you know, like it, it, would any of it begin to convey through a screen when, as you say, it's four people talking. Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to do it because I thought, well, I'm glad that I'm scared of it. Yeah. Now that I'm scared of seeing if I could do it or not, it's nice to be scared. And if it fails, four of us will fail, or maybe I'll be terrible and they'll all be great, but whatever, <laughs> you know. Uh, 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 and I can't control if the thing is any good or not. Um, but it depended enormously on us all, you know, the, those things that actors do, trust games and stuff, you know. And uh, you really needed to know that you were safe in these other actors' hands to, to be vulnerable and to... You know, we were not being asked to do the kinds of normal things. It's a bit like a dance or something. I can't find a, a comfortable analogy, but you really, I, I, let me come at it another way. We met in New York for two days. Martha wanted, Martha Plimpton plays my wife, wanted a rehearsal period of at least a week. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. I was making a film in Australia. And I said, I can't, I couldn't do it. And I couldn't do any, I had to go to Australia. And it looked like I wasn't going to be able to be in the film. And at that point I felt very upset because I, I, I thought, well, it, it's going to be a big experience and I'll feel stupid missing out on it. And so I conceded two days and I completely changed my route. As I said, it's not a big budget film. So I flew to New York and said, we met in a room and I thought we were going to rehearse or do something. And Anne Dowd, who's a remarkable woman, 
yeah. not just as an actress, but as a woman, sagely, consciously or unconsciously, she knew that whatever this pretentious bonding crap that actors do is, it had to happen to the power of 10 in, in this film. And she just opened the discussion by telling us what was going on in her life. And it was something very vulnerable. We didn't know each other. And she told us something about her life, a, a vaguely parallel to a part of the story, but not really. Um, and it opened the doors to us all peeling our layers back and, and showing each other who we were. And, and, and it was a bit like being in group therapy. We were just ostensibly finding things that were in common with the story, but they weren't really. We were saying to each other, okay, you can really know me. I will let you know me more than my friends, maybe more than my family know me. And I've just met you. And for two days, we kind of made ourselves, uh, I don't know, I mean, these phrases are so awful, but you know, like vulnerable, naked to each other, something. Um, and we didn't get through the script. There was one moment where Fran said, look, you've got, we've got to do something in the script. Read it. Just tell me, is there anything you're not comfortable with that you don't like? And, you know, you know the characters as well as I do by now, which was a very generous thing to say because it just wasn't true. Mm. Um, and we all made some suggestions. I made some suggestions particularly. I remember thinking, uh, Jay is going to this room because he knows what his wife needs to say. He likes a system. The therapist has told his wife what to do and say. He needs this other couple to say the things that allow her to say them, and then things will be fixed. And then he can go back to fixing the world because he thinks he can fix gun laws and psychiatric definitions. It's all to do with fixing problems outside himself. And uh, so when I, Fran said to me, what do you think? Uh, well, you know, if you've got any contributions, I went, yeah, when they start blathering on about their experience that I don't give a monkeys what they went through, these people, they need to say the stuff that my wife needs to hear. And that's, yeah. you know, so, uh, and similarly, everyone made some contribution, but we left after two days and we hadn't really addressed the script at all. And I went away to make a film and three weeks or a month later, we met in Idaho and we've just hit the ground running and made the film. Um, but that two days have been essential. I left and I thought, Christ, I really, I, those three strangers, and they just told me things about themselves and what they're feeling and what they're like, and, I, uh, uh, and it worked. You know, you're used to that shorthand as an actor. We try and get to know someone intimately, but it worked. And we got there, and um, most of what I had to do, I felt, uh, you, know, you, you correctly nailed it on the head, as you always do. You know, it, really, a lot of what goes on in the room, or most of it is about what's gone on outside the room you know, beforehand and, and in their life. And so Martha and I had to talk about what was our life? You know, did we sleep together anymore? When, when did we separate bedrooms? When did she start drinking? And I argued about it. You know, how often do I spend away in Washington lobbying? What do we say to our daughter? Do we still have pictures of our son up? Do I get annoyed when she talks about him? You know, do, mm -hmm. we, do we never mention him? And then particularly, specifically, what are the things that we're meant to do in this room? And what I've been told we're not meant to do. What are the arguments? I don't know if you and Linda do this, but I, Emma and I definitely do. Like we'll have, sometimes we'll be out in company and I'll bring something up and it seems innocuous. But what I'm really looking for is validation for an argument that we had privately at home, <laughs> you know? Or I'll say to Emma, uh, you know, I'll say to my missus, I'll, I'll say, you know, well, look, you said this, you promised this about some situation. She'll go, I absolutely did not say that. Yeah. But how you remember that. And so Martha and I would argue about what Jay and Gail had established between themselves. And she'd go, there's no way. And instead of nailing it down, we left it like that because we knew we were half arguing in character. Yeah. So we did a lot of time. We spent two weeks. It was really like going to some kind of intense rehab. We spent two weeks only half ever being ourselves and always somehow in the elevated, extreme emotional states of our characters. That's so why we laughed. We laughed like drains all the time because we cried and we shouted. And by the way, in the evenings when we were looking at the next day's work, we would storm out and slam the door. And like I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of, we stayed in a heightened state uh, and just hoped that if we were truthful in the room, some of it would be captured on the camera. When he was 13, he started going online. He started that gaming profile, that account. They weren't violent games then. Yeah, I know that, but... It, they were fantasy games, like role play. Yeah, I know that, but it was still the same account that he used later on, so... I'm just asking what changed. That's very hard to answer. Well, please try. It's not just one thing. Then tell me more than one right. thing. Hey, Gail, let's not do it like this, okay? Okay. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. 
We're not interrogating. Then what are you doing? I say that as compassionately as I can. What are we doing? You say you want to heal. We all do. Is this how? Was there any of doing it that took you back to doing Angels in America? Uh, not really, only because a play uh, is shared with the audience. You know, there's a difference. Some people, I think, mistakenly have talked about this as a play, and maybe it will be one day, but the camera, the camera can see what you're not saying. No, I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean, do you think, I mean, I don't think Massey's... No, 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 you're not saying, I'm saying no, some I, people have said yeah. that, but but when I think about that, when I've been asked it by journalists in the past, I go, well, I, I really think this is a film because it's, you know, they're sitting down, you'd have to move around if you're doing a play, but also this, there's a hundred layers of hidden uh, secrets and denial that the camera can see. That you can't. Angels in America, you're always aware of what you're sharing with the audience. And here, when I think back to the experience of making this film, I don't remember the cameras. I don't even remember Fran, the director. He very consciously and wisely stayed out of the room. He never put the camera between us, so we could always look at each other. It was always over someone's shoulders, yeah, yeah. you know. And um, so it didn't take me back to that. I do think what it's got in common is, you know, that felt too like serving a story which was bigger and better and more important than any of the actors. Yeah, I mean, two or three times in my life, I've been part of something and I go, this is fantastic. I almost wish I wasn't in it so I could make other people watch it. Uh, and Angels was like that. And Mass, I do think, look, you and I both love indie films and they're withering on the vine. It's very, very difficult to get people to buy a ticket. And, you know, I'm on the jury of various different uh, awards organizations. And I see these films, they're made out of such great intent to address sexual abuse or the refugee problem or, or whatever. And they're very often worthy and they're boring. Like, you know, you could make a film about serious subjects and, and you and I might even find the time to like them and say they're well-made. This is, to me, uh, you know, I'm inside the bubble, which is why it's so great to hear someone whose opinion I respect like it too. I find this electrifying and compelling. Yeah. And yet it's about something, maybe one of the biggest subjects human beings can deal with, which is, you know, <laughs> grace and generosity. I'm, I, part of me is just baffled that the film has flown under the awards radar because I can't imagine anyone seeing it and not going, 
wow that's that's really no, it's looking really... that's very nice of you to say but it, it is true that the people who see it do so lots of critics associations around the world have given it awards it's won a lot of awards won a lot of ensemble acting awards a lot of first screenplay awards a lot of awards for fran um uh, but i know lots of people in the academy i know you know a bunch of hollywood people they haven't heard of it <laughs> they don't know it exists they haven't watched it on the portal, the screening portal. People who watch it do think that. But mostly when you're given a choice of hundreds of films to watch, you watch the films that have got Golden Globe nominations or you see an advert for every time you switch on YouTube. And they're watching Power of the Dog and Belfast and various other things. And uh, do I think it's worthy of it? Yeah, I think it's as powerful a story as I've ever seen anywhere. But uh, I was right, uh, unfortunately. You know, it was a little bit frustrating because... Every critic said that because you're right. People who watch it say that. And we've, I've, all of us have been nominated for and won San Diego awards or New York area awards or whatever. But the really giant ones, uh, it just didn't get, doesn't, it's a very small film on a small budget from a fantastically committed smaller distribution company. And uh, the awards world is a separate world from uh, a kind of artistic meritocracy. Not that anything should ever win awards, that any piece of art is better than any other. Um, but I did think that that might happen because you said it and other people said it. And then I just was proved right that I do really understand the way the business works. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the so, thing and, is, and it's it, not on the BAFTA long list, for instance, which surprised me. But then I asked my friends, lots of them haven't watched it. You see, this is if the you thing. That, it, you this, is the, this is the thing. If I think, if if film critics have any point in the world, and I think, incidentally, that's a big if. I think it's to alert people to things that they might have missed otherwise. And I will happily fly the flag for Mass because I think it is it's one of the best films I've seen recently. And I know how many people haven't seen it. And I kind of feel yeah. like if I go door to door telling everybody <laughs> that more people will see it and they will tell their friends and they will well, tell listen, their friends. Listen, it does count. And by the way, uh, in some ways, I feel like it's a... This is not a good thing. I'd love for the film to have been nominated for or won those giant awards because it means a lot, a lot of people would see it. But it's true also that along the way, as part of that campaign, my ego got slightly involved. And I recognize that's unhealthy. I don't like that sense in myself that you're in that race and too many people tell you things that turn your head and then you start to go, oh, I wonder, and the nominations are out tomorrow. And in some way, I feel the relief now that I can concentrate back on what really yeah. matters, which is, can I get lots of people to watch this story? Because I chose to go into the storytelling business because I believe in it. I think it's got the power to change. It changed me, and I think it's got the power to change other people. So the most important thing now that it's not going to get attention that way is to get attention other ways, like, thankfully, being on your podcast or on your radio show, and I've been up all day since six this morning, you know, banging the drum for it. And if I can get people to see it, uh, it will make my ego right-size again. I'm in the storytelling yeah, yeah. business. I love stories. I'm not in the uh, aren't I wonderful business, you know. Well, here's, okay, here's the weird thing. So if I just... I I completely coincidentally have this. Okay, so this is the. This has just come out. This is a. This is a Blu-ray of Shawshank. I, I got sent this because I made a documentary about Shawshank, which is which is on this. The funny thing about Shawshank is this. I when Shawshank first came out, I didn't really get it. Didn't really get mm -hmm. the thing. I ended up writing a book about it and making a documentary about it. And it was in the book and the documentary were both entirely about how Shawshank became Shawshank, and Shawshank Redemption. I mean, it's a different thing. It's a fairly comparatively big budget movie, stars, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, awards coverage. In the cinema, comparatively, nobody went to see did it. it. It tanked on the day. Oh, it tanked. No, it, it, it flopped. It flopped massively when it opened. Right. It took it took less than it cost, so it was a it was a failure. And then it found its audience, weirdly, on when the first home video went out, they shipped huge, and I ended up, I'm literally speaking to people in the industry getting figures on this, they shipped huge numbers of video because what happened was that the people that went to see it all told their friends. And by the time right. their friends, then it was out, and then it went from being an actual failure, a box office flop, to being what is now regularly considered to be either one, two, or three in people's favourite movies of all time. Oh, yeah. Now, the really fascinating thing about it is, is it's one of the very few cases in which word of mouth, you can trace it. You can literally trace it, okay? The, 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 that's how it happened. Shawshank happened because people said to each other, I saw this movie and I love this you movie and I it. think this movie yeah. will, will be important to you. And and it's, you know, everyone, I, I remember Tim Robbins saying, yeah, people were saying to me, what was that thing you did, the shit shonk reduction or something? They couldn't, they didn't even know the title <laughs> of it. And well, I, I, I am completely, I have yet to meet someone 
who's seen mass, who has not been knocked out by it. And that's the thing that makes me think it's literally just a numbers game. You just need to get people sure. to tell other well, people. Well, there's something else actually that goes on with mass. And so I, I, um, I hope I don't tread on any toes here. I, I, there was a big discussion about the title for a start. There was some well, notion of changing the title, title at some point. I think it's a great title. Um, I always felt there should be a logline somewhere, but I could never think of one. So maybe that's the reason there wasn't. To make sure that people didn't think what they were doing was diving into a giant cauldron of pain. Because I think that in the end, and when people say to me, I watched it, God, it was so harrowing, so emotional. And I think, well, are they going to recommend it to other people? You should see it. It's really upsetting. It's not. Like I've seen it with audiences. People are slightly delirious. They're elated at the end. There's the moment when the choir play and I... You know, when 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 there is hope in the world, hope for these people, hope that their lives will be better, is divine. It's it's special, and I I think that when people are recommending it to each other, what they'll what they're recommending is go. You'll be really upset. You'll get through two bottles of Kleenex. But they often forget to say, which is why I thought a tagline should help focus the press or even the text. You know, it was on the BAFTA portal and the Academy portal, and the text was part of the original copy that was written, which is two couples meet after a, a tragic incident to process their pain or something like that. I think, well, I wouldn't watch that. Who the hell would watch that? Oh, my God. In a search for forgiveness, you know, or something. Um, so, uh, or healing, some some positive word. So I think, I, I, look, I hope you're right. I think it's a magnificent piece of work and great work in the end. I've been in a few things, oddly, that they're not like this, but over time, uh, uh, that were terrible failures that have, you know, Peter Pan, for instance, was a catastrophic flop and it's now lots of family favourites. Even Event Horizon to an extent is a... Is a well, I've always, I've always been a flag flyer for Event Horizon. I think that's, you know, and I think what's hilarious about Event Horizon is how much now it's become the uber text that everyone in the know refers to. Again, oh, yeah, yes, this yeah, yeah. Draws it's the template. It it's really so many is. Things. It really is. <laughs> yeah. That thing about logline, I mean, of course, in the case of Shawshank, the logline was brilliant. It was hope can set you free. And you go, because as oh you know- Oh my God, we should have nicked it. That's what we should have done. Because as, <laughs> as, as, as you know, uh, we have said, there's a lot of Shawshank before the redemption. And yet somehow they managed to, <laughs> you know, that, that whole idea about, you know, the picture of Tim Robbins. But yes, it is that hope can set you free is, is a- it is. It is a very. It's. It's hard to sell a movie to somebody, which the movie deals with stuff. When it put, you know, it gets you in the fields. It. It. It, it gets its fingers yeah. into stuff, which. But it is gets messy. you in the fields in the right way. Look, I. I, I can watch things that make me sad. I didn't mean I could barely get through the road. But Vigo was a friend of mine. I had to watch it. Like, I remember Emma reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road at night, and every night I'd sit next to her and I'd look over, and she's absolutely keening, sobbing, and I go, "We really need to go. This thing is the saddest thing I've ever read." And I go, "Put it down." <laughs> don't, don't read it then. Is it real? Because no, it's not like reading Ellie Wiesel's <laughs> Night or something. You know, to be made up. Um, I think you not not that everything should have a happy ending. You know, sometimes they're cautionary tales. But I don't know about you know, like for instance, Don't Look Up, which I, I rather enjoyed. I thought so rather, did I. Uh, so did I. Brilliantly disguised and fooled people with its uh, comedy bells and tassels and and you know, cast kind of ensemble cast into watching something. So that when it finishes, you go. Oh my God, what are we doing? What am I doing in my life? You know, I thought that was a rather fabulous sleight of hand trick. But generally, I think you need to offer some hope, not happiness, but something. And I think Mass does it in, in space. I think everybody does it yeah. uh, well. So I hope people see it. I mean, uh, you'll help. Yeah, you know, the fact that you've said that they could put it on posters and stuff. And, but in the end, people, I avoided Manchester by the Sea forever. I love Kenny Lonergan. I thought, um, uh, that first film he made uh, with Pass, oh my God, pay, pay it forward. No, um, no, no, Laura, with Laura Linney and Matthew Broderick yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, which Mark Ruffalo. Which is called. Oh, we'll come back to it. I can't yeah, believe it. Yeah. I used to recommend it to everyone. Anyway, I thought it was magnificent. Got so, memory, yeah. When he uh, made Manchester by the Sea, uh, I, you know, and I heard what it was about. But why would I want to watch that? I watch documentaries all the time. But I want to immerse myself in tragedy. I do work with the Red Cross. You know, there's real tragedy all around me in London. So why do I? And it took me years to watch it. And still having watched it at the why, end, I went, oh, I... And, and because what? Because people had told you that it was depressing and, and It's awful. about grief and loss. And, you know, this man who was in terrible pain and couldn't get through it. And like, So I hope that when people watch Mass, they don't say that because it isn't. It's about the search for, uh, you know... I, this, I don't know how to cram this in, but but one of the things I thought about a lot when we made Mass and afterwards, uh, I've been involved a little bit with restorative justice things, but there's one particular story I heard uh, on a podcast, which was of this 
man who had been in prison, been a model prisoner, come out and now is a model citizen, changing the world and communities around him. And he attributed this to the moment in court when he'd gone to be sentenced, he'd broken into a house, an old couple there, and he'd killed the, killed the, 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 the man in the house. And his wife came to court to make a witness statement. And he braced himself and she stood up. I can't get through this without crying, sorry. She said, I love you and I forgive you and I wish you nothing but greatness in life. And it made his life great. And that is why I wanted to make mass. That's what I hope it's about. That's what it, you know, I, I can wake up in the morning and be just crippled with self-pity and self-centeredness and, uh, or anger, righteous anger. You and I are angry about a lot of the same things politically, <laughs> a lot of the same groups of people. And, um, you know, you sit in a room with someone who is utterly convinced of things and you might never agree with them. The people in mass might never agree about anything, but they acknowledge each other's humanity and it's a start. It's why, yeah. it's why there was peace in Northern Ireland. I, it was credited. I worked with this group called Allmet, which is an umbrella group of uh, grassroots organizations across the Middle East, Palestinians and Israelis, farmers, mothers, sportsmen, you know, who, who, who artists uh, who despair at the failure of the politicians to bring about any meaningful change. But the reason they do it, the reason the organization exists, the reason it's been well-funded by a lot of people is because that's what George Mitchell credited the Northern Ireland peace agreement with yeah. that it started because grassroots organization made contact and saw each other as human. They didn't agree, they didn't necessarily forgive, but they connected. And that's that's what I think uh, stories can do. Bipolar disorder, depression, mania, ADHD, possible schizoaffective disorder. None of that is psychopathy. You don't know what you're talking about. If you take the medical records with the criminal report, which we now finally we have the full report, don't you have to weigh the evidence, the facts of what he did against your personal relationship, your history those with things. Him. It wasn't always those things. We can trace how far back to when he started planning it. We can trace his footsteps for Christ's sake. I don't think the timeline definitively proves anything about his mental state. How can you say We're that? We're not denying what he did or who he became. Well, well I can't help but hear you blame a, a, a not abnormal childhood. He was my son. I can't remove my feelings from our history or his records. I'm not asking you to. I'm saying that what he did, his, his capacity for murder was probably potentially there a long time before anyone could have known. You think you can attach one word to something in order to understand it, to make you feel safe? Well, I won't say it. I don't believe it. It's not simple. It's everything you cannot see. That film title you're trying to remember is You Can Count On Me. Why? Oh, thank God for that. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Why did I think Pay It Forward? Why is uh, that? Because you're old and your mind is failing. No, that is right. But does that happen oh, sorry, to you? Sorry. Do you, do you no, I mean, I am. Oh, you're you're kidding the me? same age. You know, it's like. I only remember things in character. <laughs> That's why. I was just, I, um, I was doing an interview today because I've done all day mass interviews. Obviously, the film's coming out. And, and I had realized something that it's odd because, you know, God, you, you've been conducting interviews and I've been giving them for 35 years. I'm surely nothing new to say about my life, which has been not very interesting. And, and I've mined and milked every instant <laughs> for everything I can. <laughs> but I realized that my daughter uh, is at college and just directed her first play and it opened last night. And I was oh, hoping wow. that she would get in touch. Yeah, it was great. And I was hope, uh, hoping she would get in touch and go, oh my God, dad. And, you know, talk about some seminal moment or some pivotal moment. There's nothing. It was just play opened and it went all right. And, you know, the lighting key went wrong or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I remember that for me, <laughs> the first time I went to a rehearsal room, not that I realized at the time, in retrospect, I, I'd been so uh, uncomfortable. I know that your recollection is that I was very confident, which I definitely was what I projected, wanted to project, but I'd been so uncomfortable in so many different groups throughout my life. Yeah. Uh, but at school, in the, community I grew up in Edgware and then going to university, being surrounded by all those kind of Sloan Rangers and, uh, you know, in many places. When I used to skateboard, being one of the only white kids at the South Bank and stuff like that, you know, there's just uh, lots of places. Uh, I felt that I was very successfully faking that I belonged, but there yeah. was a whole inner monologue. And I went to a rehearsal room because I, you know, just was played, I got in. And the first time I ever felt comfortable being myself it's when I was exploring being other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I could have their thoughts in my head. Now, it seems ironic. I'm sure a psychiatrist has a field day with it. But 
the the arts community or the community of storytellers, which you and I are both in and different sides of it. We're, we are about not, you know, who you are and where you've come from, where you're, doesn't matter. You know, we're exploring the human condition. And, I, and, and it was odd to think that the first time I felt truly comfortable was when I, I went into a room where uh, you were going to pretend to be someone else. I have to say, on the on the subject of on the subject of which that was a beautifully eloquent thing, but on the subject of exploring the human condition, I did a I did an on stage the other day with um with uh, MK three D at the South Bank mm. and um and Joanna Hogg was one of the guests and we'd asked her to pick a oh, yeah. we'd asked her to pick a guilty pleasure film and she said I'm going to pick a whole genre and she went for disaster movies she loves disaster oh, yeah. movies you know Joanna Hogg this is like Joanna Hogg the person oh, no, who makes very unlikely yeah she loves musicals and disaster movies right <laughs> you know but so and uh, anyway so she said yeah I see. I see every, I love disaster movies. She said, you have to tell me, like, tell me a great disaster movie to see. I said, have you seen Skyfire? She went, no, what is it? I said, Jason Isaacs builds a hotel on the side of a volcano. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. God, I love making that film. I can't believe it. I know. I I mean, but that, that was an odd one. That was an odd one to publicise as well. You were very helpful. You liked it so much. But uh, I I enjoyed the heck out of it. You want to say to people, it's incredibly enjoyable rubbish, but you can't you, you can't say that. But there's something. But it things. is incredibly enjoyable rubbish. I mean, there is not enjoyable rubbish, and then there is really. I mean, people talk all the time about popcorn movies, and most of the time it means shit. But you know, a really good proper. You know, he's built the hotel. Let, where? let me pivot. Let me pivot slightly here off the back of that into something that uh, for fun. Okay. Uh, that I think you get wrong. So you get so much right uh, about, you know, so I, I am led by you when I choose films. Yeah, well, that's uh, you a know, bad all thing. All the time. No, no, most of the time it's right. Sometimes you disagree okay. completely. So go this on. thing you've got that you, what? not you go on about, but this notion that uh, the lack of a window, day and date releases of films is, is not harming cinema. Oh, I see. Uh, right. Fine. I went, uh, it is killing cinema. It's crippling it. Like, you know, people who make smaller films, uh, there's just no way. No one's buying a ticket. No one's going out. And part of who's not going out is they go, and anyone, any film I'm in, they go, well, when's it on streaming? When will I see it on Netflix? Uh, and only if there were, I, I, by the way, I might be being a Luddite here because it's never going backwards anyway. So what's the point? But only when you know you've got to wait a long time, is there an incentive to leave your house and go out and buy a ticket? So and yet, well, what is it that's yet, convincing you? And yeah, oh, okay. Spider-Man, obviously, and James Bond. But, no, but no, it's not just it's not just films. it's not just Spider-Man and James Bond. I know. I mean, for example, I mean, the, I suppose the big one is when Ben Wheatley's filled in England opens simultaneously in cinemas on pay-per-view on television with adverts and then right, on the Monday right. on Blu-ray, and they did exactly the same business in cinemas as they had expected to do. And, you know, in the case of Mass, as far as I understand, there it's available in some cinemas and it's available on Sky Movies. And the, it's not that everyone will go see it. Some people will go and see it in cinemas. My experience of this is that I know enough people who go to see... For, I mean, it's... Firstly, you're right. It's like old man shouts at clouds. This is what's uh, happening, Jason. Get no, it is what's program. happening. And by the way, thank God for Sky Cinema. They bought a couple of films I've been in. They bought Hotel Mumbai as well. And they, you know, they uh, they recognize films, you know, powerful films and, and controversial stories that, and things the, that resonate key, with adults. But the key God thing bless is, them for buying them. The key thing is I don't buy this it's killing cinema thing. Because if people... It is not true that people, given the choice to see something at home and see it cinema, will simply pick at home. There are there are enough. I mean, obviously, look, I live in a rarefied. You know, I'm a, I'm a film critic. My wife is a professor of film. Child two is currently studying film. Child one is. By the way, my child two says she wants to direct horror films. Well, then, which I'm amazed hey, by, and I said. You- if I know some people, if my professional experience in social <laughs> life is useful at any time in your life, it's I know some people that are right up that alley. Well, here's the thing. The thing I've always said about horror films, and I'll stand by it, is the nastiest horror films I've ever seen are made by the nicest people I've ever met. And yeah, I yeah. have met people who have made... Well, no, I went made, to Wes Craven's Barbecue. What a lovely what a lovely fellow he was. No, exactly. And yet I have seen... I didn't recognise the bones we were eating, but there you go. I have interviewed uh, somebody who was the head of a very big studio that make lovely children's films that all children love, and he was an absolute wanker. 
You know, it's it's like, you know. So the whole thing about horror film horror filmmakers are great. They are like you know really really nice people, and you should be very proud, Jason, if you've raised somebody. Who wants I know to I'm horror. utterly thrilled, and she's seen everything. And uh, The Exorcist is one of her favorites. Uh, and you know, she's heavily influenced by me. The Babadook is one of her favorites too. Uh, she was very unimpressed by, I, I tell you what happened a couple of years ago. Uh, she, it was Halloween. She was staying in with a mate and she said, dad, what can we watch? that's really scary. And I said, well, why don't you watch Halloween? It's Halloween. I mean, you know, nothing better than the original Halloween. And so they were, I, I went to the kitchen. I shut the doors to where the front room, they're watching telly and I switched the lights off. So it's dark and Halloween's and 20 minutes later, she opens the door and she goes, it's rubbish, dad. There's hardly been anyone killed. They killed some people. Now I'm waiting 20 minutes. It's not even, is there anything scarier? And I went, um, okay. And I put the Babadook on and I shut the doors again. I switched the lights off and I saw the lights come on under the door. And I'm like, oh, they're not even concentrating on this. They have kids, they've got no attention span. And I couldn't hear it, which is annoying because obviously, as you know, sound is, you know, an enormous part of a film experience. And I opened the door and it was on very, very quietly. I said, is this thing not working for you? They went, no, we were terrified. <laughs> we had to put the lights on and turn the sound down. And oh. I watched, I'm here in Toronto with this lovely cast of people uh, who've not seen many horror films. And we went away for the weekend to a big country house because that's what people do in Toronto. They've got these lakes with, so we all rented a house and I put host on. on Very telly, good. Which I absolutely Very adored. Good. And we watched it in the dark and, Nobody could go to sleep. And the lead actress, Sophia Bush here, is terrified every night still, three months later in a house, it's all the lights on because of host. So I love a good horror film. But this, I've been steered by you. Romola Gary's just made a new film. She directed this film called Amulet, which I really liked. It's kind of kind of really creepy. It's it's a very creepy horror I've film. I've seen it. But, it's very, very oh, good. you've seen it? Yeah. Did you like yeah. it? I did. Oh, well, she's very smart. I remember reading no, she's very smart. years and ago. A, and thinking, a huge horror film fan. A huge one. horror film fan. Yeah, yeah. She came. Well, she, came thing, she came. She came yeah. to the show, and she was like, you know, she was. She she seen everything very early. And she said, "Oh well, I'm very influenced by Zuofsky's Possession." It was like, okay, that's it. Well, then you're the real deal because you know what you're talking about. I think that. Uh, I mean, awards. Sorry, back to awards again. Yeah. Slightly. Uh, horror films are, uh, for some odd reason, uh, because I don't know, they're thought of as genre. The extraordinary acting you get in horror films. I mean, you know, okay, in mass, we're very upset. We're crying a lot. We're angry a lot. So in horror films, without the real gravitas of the emotional situations we had to imagine, actors and actresses have to get themselves to a pitch of emotion and stay there for months and months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is incredibly, just as a piece of craft, incredibly yeah. difficult to do. And they're always overlooked. Always. Yeah. They never yeah. get any credit for it. And, I don't, and in order to make someone jump, uh, or, or stay in a state of kind of heightened peril. It, it re requires incredible skill, and, and they're never given their due, I don't think. Uh, uh, I remember Under the Shadow was, which I was rather thrilled by, the Biffers. Yeah, Under which the is Shadow, fantastic. Babak Ambry's film, film, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful filmmaker. Yeah, no, I love that movie. Absolutely brilliant movie. And again, that was another case of I knew nothing about it. I saw it, and five minutes in, you just think this is really, really smart. Well, that's and the best I way. I mean, you know, there's a... There's a problem, a <laughs> problem in what you do for a living <laughs> and what I do, which is really people should just go and see it, buy a subscription, go and see films and not have a clue what's yeah, in yeah. it. Just wait yeah. for that. And then afterwards, listen to you. Afterwards, listen to commentators. Afterwards, look at analysis for an interesting discussion. You know, I looked at Sensor. I watched Sensor. And then I, I saw what you said about it. And I know other people said yeah. about it. You know, So, um it's so our era, Sensor, though. I, I, I do think that you no, were looking it at it through it, the bias it, of that. That was when you and I were watching yeah, films. No, the it clothes, absolutely, the it music, the sweets. Absolutely is. It. And that's what, when you talk about, you know, going skateboarding down the South Bank, and that's like, it's the late 70s, and then you hit the 80s, video arrives, no one can quite believe it. What, you can take a film home? Yes, yeah, not just that you can take a film home, you can take Cannibal Holocaust home. You're going, what? You've gone from like nothing to everything. Suddenly the sweet shop is open, and all these films you'd only ever heard of are suddenly available, and there's this brief period before the Video Recordings Act in which there's nothing is un, you know nothing no. is unavailable. I tell you what has changed as well that I've not heard you reference, but I but I think you do it instinctively, which is there was a period of time that you know Robert McKee talks about, uh, but without acknowledging the time change too, where a film if you made a, if you made a movie, you had about twenty minutes to grab people's attention. Mm -hmm. You'd bought a ticket, you'd sat down in the dark, you certainly weren't going to walk out. You'd yep. chosen it, you know, so you can create a world. And then something can happen. What you know? What film scholars call the inciting incident or whatever. Now, it's mostly the case that people are going to be watching it at home eventually, anyway, or simultaneously. And you don't have twenty minutes. 
That's just not the way you can tell a story because someone's going to look at their phone or iPad or switch over or look at the guide or, you know, it's just, you don't. So the narrative has changed. You're, it's Dickensian. You know, the, like when the first chapter came out in the newspaper, he had to hack, uh, had to hook people so that they bought the next chapter, next installment. And so uh, story structure has changed a lot, I think. And the need to grab people's attention with the story has changed a lot. That's why it's so much similar to te- so much when, more similar to television. But when it comes to horror cinema, I remember David Cronenberg saying that you know that quite often what you do is you front load the worst stuff at the beginning because you need to give some you need to go look bang and then and then they're on they're on edge for the rest of it because they don't know whether you're going to do that again. And I always yes, thought that yeah, was yeah. A, it was a really lovely thing that you you know you show them how far you're going to go and then it's like they spend the whole of the rest of the movie thinking is he going to go back there? Now, but, I can't remember if I asked you this before. Did you? Is vaguely related in uh, in promising young woman. Yes, where Kerry goes out and has that first encounter with uh, whatever his name is, uh, the actor whose name I'm sorry I've forgotten your name. You know exactly. Um, what you mean yep. Him, and him. then he, and then you cut to her with blood dripping down her, and then you pull back and you go, oh no, it's a hot dog. Yeah, and then she goes home and she opens her diary with all the people she's done this to, and she writes his name in blue, and there are some entries in red. And I thought to myself at that point, I know I'm not the only person because I've taken a straw poll. Ooh, some of them didn't get off that lightly. Yeah, yeah. She killed some of them. Yeah. In which case, you then start asking yourself throughout the film, well, she's not, these people who've done far more egregious things, she's not killing. She's letting them off the hook. She lets the lawyer off the hook. So, and then you go, maybe I was wrong. Oh, no, I've been walking around for an hour or sitting here for an hour thinking she kills people. She doesn't kill people. It's not what she does. Um, I found literally a smaller detail as red biro and blue biro yeah. through me and that film, yeah, which yeah. is otherwise has many, many uh, fabulous merits. Did you, did you fall for that? Did that? I saw the red attention? biro, blue biro, and I thought exactly the same as you did, which was, I thought red biro. Yeah. That's, that's what I Dead. thought that meant. Yeah. Because there's no other reason for changing between. But the, then what, but then she doesn't do anything violent. No, 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 else, I know because, ever. because, well, it's either. Yes. By the time we got to, I'd kind of forgotten about it. I'd forgotten about it until you, but I do remember watching it. I do remember thinking, oh yeah, it's the, it's, it's, it's the diary entry thing. I had to watch it again without that in my head because it ruined it for me the first time. I thought, well, I don't understand why she's not killing these people. It's such a tiny detail on a film. Which you watch films Here's the other thing I want to know about you, because I don't get to talk to you enough. Sorry. Right. I, I, it's this the public podcast, forum. This podcast and I'm has gone forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure it'll be cut. I think they want me on set. I think they're rolling cameras. But um, <laughs> how is it when I'm listening to you yeah. on your shows or your podcast, and you go, well, I've seen that three times. What? Mm. You're watching 12 films a week. No, you sit, you've got a wife and kids. And you sit there and you go, I'll tell you what I do. Let's put that on again. No, no, but it doesn't work. Okay, it doesn't work like that. So, for example, if say I watch a film in the, I go to a screening of a film and I really like it, and I think, okay, well, I might well lead on that in the Observer. So I'll always watch the the lead film at least twice, the second time round to kind of you know just because if you're going to write seven hundred words about a film, you should probably have seen it twice. You know, okay. I, it's a thing. And then if I enjoy it after having written the thing, I then will watch it again for fun. That would so, be a good answer, except that sometimes films you don't enjoy. You go, I didn't like it the first two times. Yeah, but, but then I watched it again. But but then but then that's often because if I watch something, and it, I mean, this is my job, so it's like it's not, you know. So if I watch something and it troubles me, and it, it I think, why didn't you know why? Because there was one film particularly just recently that I really didn't like, and I right. watched it. This was um, uh, not last Christmas. What's it called? Silent Night. And I really yes, didn't so, yeah. like it. I really didn't like it. But I really didn't like it in a way that bothered me. And I thought, why don't, right. why do I really not like it? Because there are so many things in there that I actually should like. And I went back and I saw it again. And the second time round, I realized that the reason I didn't like it was I didn't believe in any of it. Right. So it no, I, heard, the, I heard you say that and that made yeah. perfect sense to me. But I was I really, also think but I was really glad the, that I went back and said, because otherwise it would just be me going, I hate that thing about going, I don't like this film and I don't know why. And incidentally, why. I think it's entirely possible that the filmmaker may make something really interesting later on because there is an idea in there it's just i couldn't figure out why it was leaving me so cold sure i mean i i I say i feel sorry for those people that made dystopian apocalyptic stories and put them into motion and started 
developing them before the pandemic. And then there was a year ago and you go, I don't need to, I, I really don't need any <laughs> help right. from fiction to imagine the world as I know it falling apart and us all eating each other in the street. So please, please don't serve up any more of those stories. I find them very tricky, you know. Well, listen, we should probably draw this to a close because you're, oh, you're yeah, being sorry. called on set and I've probably got I to go. I am actually, I do have to go to set. Yeah, <laughs> uh, only because I wasn't meant to be, but the, we got snowed out and now there's a bunch of scenes they're trying to... Uh, uh, cram in. Yeah. Um, Mass is available now in some cinemas and on Sky Cinema. Um, I would advise anybody to see it. As Jason has said, it is, I think, you know, it's a shame that Shawshank had it because you should have used Hope Can Set You Free because it is a great line. Yeah, that's true. But it is, you know, it is it is an uplifting spiritual experience and it's it's one of the most remarkable films i've seen for a long time and i absolutely love it it's the first and i've now gone back and i you know i know that i know that that's what i think about can it. we put this in context you know when you go to a restaurant and you go what's good and they go oh the ribs are fantastic and the avocados <laughs> to die for and i always go what's crap then because I, <laughs> you might just like kind of just put in context mark is my friend from a long time ago he is very very happy to completely eviscerate the really shitty films i've been in many you times you have been in some shit you know, that's <laughs> i've been fine. in some appalling films and i give you full <laughs> license to say so the most so, appalling one the most appalling one was that fucking science fiction film that i sat through for two and three quarter hours because you were in it and then you weren't even fucking in it I you were just in it. i did a voiceover in my bedroom Terrible Sorry. alien doing some. <laughs> what the fuck was that? By the about? way, huge hit, huge hit in Australia. Was it huge hit? They loved it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what was it called? You need to watch it three times to fully appreciate no, I it. No, no, I know it's why it's I didn't like it. What was it called? It's called Occupation Rainfall. Occupation Rainfall. It was the yeah. sequel to another film that I'd never seen. Yes, that's and right. I have to Me say, I'm not going to go back and watch it anyway. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Watch Mass again. Anyway, lovely it's really to lovely to, to see you. See you. Um, well, I hope to see you in the flesh at some point when, you know, whenever that's uh, actually possible. Stay safe, everybody, and go stay to the safe. cinema. Have three vaccinations and go to the cinema. See this yeah. and anything else you can. All right. Lots of love. I've got to go. Take care. Bye. Bye. There we are. That's the great Jason Isaacs talking about mass and pretty much everything else. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I know it's a rather long one, but there you go. You don't have short conversations with Jason. Um, if you have enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, uh, visit our Patreon page. Uh, I'll be back soon doing something else which will be shorter than the one that we've just done. Thanks very much for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends, stay safe, keep watching this, guys. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.